Hey, we are concluding our series, Eating with the Enemy. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to uh, Luke chapter 14. You know, in the time and place that Jesus was born, raised, and lived his life, the enemy really was the Roman Empire. But in the Gospels, interestingly enough, uh, the Romans, the outsiders, are rarely portrayed as the enemies of Jesus. Versus uh, many times the Pharisees, the insiders, um, who were the Jewish religious heroes of the common people, they are often portrayed as enemies of Jesus. And so, eating with the enemy, historically, the biggest threat to the church has been from the inside, not the outside. And over the centuries, the persecuted church often grows and thrives, versus the powerful church is often corrupted and unfaithful. Um, and this is true, the fact that the biggest threat to our faith comes from the inside, not the outside. That's true both corporately and individually. If you just reflect on your own faith for a moment, when you struggle, does the cause of your struggles come primarily from outside of you or inside of you? I think for most of us, when we struggle in our faith, the struggle comes more times than not from within. And then, you know, the enemy isn't always who you think it's going to be. You know, when we look at these stories from the Gospel of Luke, the enemies of the story, they sound a lot like us. And so addressing the enemy of our faith begins by looking within. Our scripture reader for this morning is Tim Yane. And so, Tim, if you can make your way on up to the podium. If you are able, I'm going to ask you to please stand and face the center of the room. And we stand because we believe that this is the word of God. And so, Tim, whenever you are ready, please read from Luke chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So, taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? And they had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Tim, thank you very much. You may be seated.
You know, in this series, we've looked at three times in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus eats with the enemies. Two weeks ago, uh, in Luke chapter 7, we looked at a time when Jesus had dinner with a Pharisee named Simon, and there was this contrast between Simon and a sinful woman who came to the dinner. And we saw how Simon was very aware of other people's sins, but not very aware of his own, which, again, that sounds a lot like us. Um, Last week, Pastor John in Luke chapter 11 looked at a time when Jesus had dinner with a different Pharisee and the Pharisees at the home at the dinner, they were more concerned about appearances than character, which again, that sounds a lot like us. And so today we're looking at another account of a meal with a Pharisee. And when it comes to learning about ourselves, it's common to ask Um, What do you do when no one is looking? Because how you behave when no one is looking reveals a lot about you. But we also can learn a lot about ourselves by asking, what do you do when everybody is watching? You see, how we behave in front of others can also be really insightful to who we are. You know, we've all had times when we have been carefully watched. Uh, If you've ever gone on an interview, you've experienced this, that you are carefully watched. Everything you do on that interview is scrutinized. Um, If you've ever been in a dating relationship and you get to the point in a relationship where you need to meet either your boyfriend's or girlfriend's family, um, and when you meet their family for the first time, you are being carefully watched. Everything you do is really scrutinized. Um, If you ever eat a cheeseburger in front of your dog, you are being carefully watched. My dogs look at me like, is that a cheeseburger? I like cheeseburgers. That's a big cheeseburger. Are you gonna eat all that cheeseburger? If you look at the very beginning of the passage in verse uh, 1 of chapter 14, Jesus is being carefully watched. When everyone is watching, the pressure is on. So when everyone is watching, what do you do? Do you simply want to make a good impression, or do you want to make an impact? See, when everyone is watching, a part of who you are comes out. Now, Jesus is at a prominent Pharisee's house, and there are other Pharisees and experts of the law there. Experts of the law is a reference to something called the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And in that day and in that place and with those people, how you interpret those first five books called the law and how you live them out was a big, big deal. It mattered a lot, especially to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, news of Jesus by this point has spread all over the region. And so now you've got Jesus at this prominent Pharisee's house. There's other uh, Pharisees there, probably of relative influence. Um, And if you just kind of think about that setting, it feels like an interview. And so how is Jesus going to pass the test? What exactly is going on here? If we watch carefully, we will learn three things about Jesus, things that he does and says when everybody is watching. See, first of all, Jesus puts compassion before convention. 
In the first six verses of chapter 14, if you still have your Bibles open and want to look there, what you see is that there's this man with this physical deformity. And it's also the Sabbath day. And what's important, if you are following the law, if you are following the Torah, you do not work on the Sabbath. But there's a question. You know, what does it mean to work on the Sabbath? What does that look like? Well, according to um, many people's interpretations in that day, and definitely it was the, probably the interpretation of the Pharisees that Jesus is eating with, if you are a healer, healing on the Sabbath is a form of work. So you do not heal on the Sabbath. And Jesus, in his question, kind of challenges that in verse 3 when he asks, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And for m many of the Pharisees in the room, the answer would be no. And even if I were to put myself in those Pharisees' place, I would actually reason with Jesus on this one. I would say, Jesus, look, what is the harm of waiting a few hours to heal the man? You see, because in their understanding, the day would end at sundown. And so I don't know what time this meal is taking place, but we're talking a couple hours. Jesus, look, just wait until sundown. The Sabbath will be over, and you can heal the guy. And so you can heal him in a way and not break our understanding of how the law works. We're talking a few hours, Jesus. Surely this man can wait a few hours. And Jesus' response is basically, where's the compassion in that? Really? It's as if Jesus is saying, hey, look, if there is no compassion in your understanding of the law, then according to Jesus, you're getting it wrong. You're getting it wrong. If your interpretation of the law is to wait a few hours before I heal this guy that needs to be healed, there's no compassion in that. And then in verse 5, Jesus points out to them, hey, look, if your son or if your oxen were to fall into a well, you wouldn't wait until sundown to help them out. You'd have compassion on them. So why can't I have compassion on this man? And their response, Scripture says, was they had nothing to say. Look, Jesus wasn't saying the law doesn't matter. Jesus wasn't saying the Sabbath doesn't matter. Jesus was simply saying, look, compassion before convention, before your conventional interpretations and traditions. Um, last week, I don't know if you were here, uh, Pastor John kind of called me out. Uh, he was talking about the time this football season when the Packers beat the Lions. I don't know if you remember that reference. But when the Packers beat the Lions this season, they won mainly because of a couple of bad calls by the referees. Um, and even though the Packers won because of the bad calls, I was still happy that they won, even though Detroit should have won. Okay, that's fine. And John called that a lack of character on my part. I just want to go on record and say that Pastor John was right. He was right. I didn't have any compassion for the Detroit Lions fans in that terrible, unfair loss. Okay? I need, I, a little confession time, I need to get better on my compassion for Detroit Lions fans. I did some self-reflection this week in light of that, and I kind of realized why I'm callous to the suffering of Detroit Lions fans. And, now this is going to sound harsh, but any Detroit Lions fan will agree with me, the Detroit Lions lose a lot. 
Okay, it's pretty normal when they lose in their history. They've lost 100 more games than they've won. Uh, in my entire lifetime, they've had 12 winning seasons and 36 non-winning seasons. Um, they've never been to a Super Bowl. Uh, the Packers have beaten them 101 times, so fine, we'll take away that victory that was unfair this week. They beat them 100 times, it's fine. Um, but I was, you know, so I was not compassionate, I was callous, because, you know, they lose a lot. I, I, okay, fine. Even if you look at their name, the Detroit Lions, it almost seems like there's something in their DNA to lose. So go ahead and put Detroit Lions on the screen, okay? And I'll put the next Detroit Lions on the screen. Okay, if you were to just simply take the O and the S from the word Lions and move it to right after the L, you get Detroit losing. So I just thought it was in their DNA. But it's very callous of me. It's a lack of character on my part. And so I'm going to try to be more compassionate to Detroit Lions fans in the future and be less callous when they suffer. Um, I'm trying to sound really sincere when I say that. Who's suffering? Whose suffering are you callous to? Whose suffering are you? callous to. You know, what groups of people do you find yourself not having much compassion for? And maybe it's because of their age, or maybe it's because of their race, or maybe it's because of their social status, or maybe it's because they weren't born here. I don't know. Who's suffering? Are you callous to? You see, it's really not that hard to be callous. I can be callous to the homeless, because shouldn't they just get a job? Um, I can be callous to felons because they did the crime, so they should do the time. I can be callous to drug addicts because they just need to get clean, right? Look, getting jobs and paying debts and getting clean, those are all good things. Those are conventional things. Work, obey the law, make good decisions. They're all good. They're all conventional. And Personally, I'm, I'm, I'm a reap what you sow kind of guy. I really am. But where's the compassion? Does my compassion come before my convention? Mercy, mercy needs to be given strategically and thoughtfully. It shouldn't be done haphazardly. You know, we have limited resources, and so we need to be wise in using them, in showing compassion. But grace, grace is something that is intentional. Grace is not random. It's not like, okay, we show grace here, not here, grace here, not, that's not how grace works. At least that's not how it works for God. Compassion, it's a value to be lived out not because it makes us feel good, but because it's what we are called to do. It is what we are called to be. So when do others experience our compassion? Whose suffering are you callous to? A second thing we learn when watching Jesus is that Jesus puts humility before honor. 
If you look at in your Bibles uh, to verses 7 through 11, you know, Jesus tells, he sees people taking seats of honor, and he tells them, he says, look, don't take the seats of honor, because you may be asked to move down. So instead, take the lower seat, because then you may be asked to move up. And then Jesus goes on to say, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. In other words, what Jesus is saying is that the path to honor goes through humility. The path to honor does not go through achievement. And I know many of you, I know almost all of you, and there's a lot of you who are high-achieving folks. You work hard, uh, and you've achieved a lot. And that's a good thing. You know, we work hard to get ahead, and that's okay. Uh, being driven and getting things done, those are good things. But the danger in them is that those things can make us feel superior to others. What makes you feel superior to others? Um, I have a master's degree, so I'm ahead of most people educationally. I've been married for 23 years, so we're ahead of most marriages. I've got great kids. I'm a pastor of an awesome church. Um, it's very tempting to use these various achievements to feel superior to others. And to be honest, um, sometimes I do that. But as Pastor John said last week, God is interested in our character. We look to the outward appearance. God looks to the heart. And so in all of our achievements and in all of our hard work and in all of our accomplishments and success, when do others experience our humility? You know, it is possible. I've met many people who are both successful and humble. What would take what would taking the lowest seat look like for you? In, in your life, in your circumstances, in your situation, what would taking the lower seat look like? You see, the path to honor isn't through our education or our careers or our families or our friends. The path to honor is through humility. Humility comes before honor. And the third thing we learn from watching Jesus in this passage is just something I've entitled Needs Before Networking. If you look at verses 12 to 14 of the passage, if you still have your Bibles open, Jesus tells the host of the dinner, hey, look, when you have a dinner or something like that, um, don't invite your family and your friends and your rich neighbors to your meals, but instead invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. Because family and friends and rich neighbors, they can repay you. Today, I would argue we call that networking. The socializing that we do, the people we go out to dinner with or golf with or hang out with, you know, there's always this sense of networking. And there's nothing wrong with networking, connecting with those who can help you advance. But what about those people that can't help you advance? See, Jesus says there are those who can't repay you. Uh, you should invite them too, <laughs> or instead sometimes. 
And I think there's two implications of this. The first one is that we need to show generosity outside our social circles. And I am really confident uh, that you guys do that. I really am. I know, like I said, I know you guys, I know that you are generous people, period. You have given to those who have less than you in all sorts of ways. And when it comes to generosity, um, it's not so much who sees our generosity as much it is as who receives our generosity. But there's a second implication to this because Jesus says, invite them to your house when you hold a banquet. When you hold a banquet at your place, invite people to your place. You see, generosity is one thing. Hospitality is another. It's one thing to give to, using Jesus' language, the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. It's one thing to give to those who are less fortunate than us. It's another thing to invite them into our homes. It's another thing to learn about their lives. It's another thing to become friends. Who are the ones who receive your generosity? But again, maybe a better question is, who are the ones who receive your hospitality? Who is someone you could be generous to who cannot repay you? Who is someone that you could show hospitality and friendship to that doesn't fit your normal social circle? You know, in this series, Eating with the Enemy, I think it's pretty apparent that all of us can be callous and we can be arrogant and we can be self-centered. It's part of our sinful nature. And when we are those things, we are not helping the cause of Christ. We're just not. When we are callous and arrogant and self-centered, we act like Jesus' enemies. That's what's so disturbing to me about this. It sounds so much like me, like the Pharisees in the story. But here's the good news. This isn't just a story about us. This is a story about Jesus. And what do we see from Jesus in this passage? It's that Jesus has compassion and humility and concern for our needs, even, even when we act like the enemy. This isn't just a passage that tells us what Jesus expects. It's a passage that tells us what Jesus is like. Jesus is compassionate to us even when we're callous. And Jesus' humility, it outdoes our arrogance. And Jesus' concern for us and our needs doesn't end just because we're selfish or when we're selfish. Jesus tells the host of the dinner to invite people who cannot repay him which is exactly what Jesus does. He invites us to his table. And no matter what we do, no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we are compassionate and humble um, and you know, focused on the needs of others, we can never repay Jesus. The debt is too large. And he invites us anyway. This morning, we're going to celebrate the sacrament of communion. And so I'm going to ask the elders to please come forward. Elders, you can come forward now. And as you may have guessed, based upon how the room is set up, 
Uh, this morning for communion, we are going to come to the center of the room to receive the elements. And in the sacrament of communion, uh, it's a remembrance of the past, of what Jesus has done uh, for us. And it's also a foretaste of the future for us. But it also has present implications. You see, maybe you need Jesus to soften your heart so that you can become more compassionate. And Jesus says, come bring your callousness and I can work with that. Or maybe you need Jesus to soften your heart so that you can become more humble. And Jesus says, if you come with your arrogance, I'll work with your humility. And maybe you need Jesus to soften your heart to care more for others and maybe be a little less self-centered. And Jesus says, come, come. In this moment, when you come to the table, come with a sense of, what is it your heart needs this morning? Maybe it's one of the things I mentioned. Maybe it's something totally different. What is it that your heart needs this morning? Because Jesus invites you to come to the table to receive it. Receive God's blessing. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.